With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. Welcome to Life Happens Radio. Are you prepared? This is our weekly radio program for baby boomers and their families, where we address the challenges we all face as we age. We talk about aging as a lifestyle, the issues that must be confronted, and the careful planning that's required to avoid crises in the future. Life Happens will provide you with tools to educate and prepare yourself for events like retirement, protecting your income and assets, planning to pay for nursing home and home care, special needs, wills and trusts, planning for an untimely death, and resolving disputes in and out of court. As the laws and necessities for planning and care continue to evolve, Life Happens will help you make smart decisions to ensure that your goals and your family needs are met. Good morning, everyone. I'm Aaron Connor from Pierre O'Connor and Strauss. I am joined, unsurprisingly, by Mr. Frank Hemming, our senior associate. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Aaron. We are in a, uh, oh, I'd say a different world than we were in a, a few weeks ago, certainly in the uh, national news. Um, you know, obviously, this is a show about estate planning, but it does, these events do affect uh, estate planning in some way because they do affect markets. They affect maybe people in your family. Um, I do have, I would say, a little bit of a unique perspective on this. I am not Ukrainian, um, but in 1991, I did spend three weeks in the Ukraine and uh, I was a young, very young person at that point. I think I was 14. Um, it was still the Soviet Union for one more month the, from the date that I left. So it was a, a Ukraine that at that point was a part of the Soviet Union. And I did visit Lugansk and um, Kiev and Kharkov um, and Donetsk and uh, some obviously some places in Russia too, Moscow and Rostov-on-Don, but it is kind of heartbreaking to see what ha- it's happening there. Um, I think if I learned anything at 14, that it is that people are people, no matter where they are, have very similar needs and wants and desires. And, um, you know, certainly nobody wants to see homes being destroyed and any of that. So um, unfortunate situation. And I I feel for the people I've met, and um, hopefully that can come to a peaceful resolution soon. Yeah, I, I don't think I could really <laughs> add much to that other than I just I hope cooler heads prevail and, you know, a, a kind of peaceful resolution can be brought to the situation sooner rather than later because I don't see how this benefits anybody. Agreed. So that's our, I guess, little um, – current events section. Um, Frank, any cases this week that stood out to you with issues? Um, uh, I don't think we've gotten anything like uh, unprecedented, I guess we'll put it that way. Um, But I will, I will say that all of a sudden in the last few months, we've had quite a few cases come in where we've got someone who's in need of, you know, Medicaid services be it at home or, or in the case that I'm kind of referencing, uh, nursing homes are more likely, um, or at least they have been in these situations where the Medicaid applicant is a partial owner on a piece of real property. Um, sometimes it's been their home. Sometimes it's not been their home. And um, the, the kind of the good news with a lot of this is that at least the last few times that this has come up, we've been able to save the property by using a technique where the other co-owner of the property basically signs something saying that they're unwilling to sell it, do anything with it, um, you know, essentially modify it in any real way. And doing so is such an important tactic because doing that and executing those documents essentially makes that asset unavailable to the Medicaid applicant, which gets it off the table for now. And, the particular gentleman I have in my mind, you know, his only real 
asset is is a piece of real property. At least that's all we're aware of at the moment. So luckily his friend who's trying to help him, you know, did give us a call and I think we're going to be able to get a good result out of it for him. So that's it's it's not really something that I think is super super um common, but it is a situation that if it does come up there there is some planning opportunity there. Yeah, well I I think there's really two main things I see to unpack there. One you said those are the only assets that we know of. And this is a, a common scenario, unfortunately, that people don't disclose to their agent, whether that be a child, a friend. I mean, usually spouses are aware of what the assets are, but a surviving spouse may not tell their child what all of their assets are, where they are, you know, who is the financial company or the life insurance company. And that's a big challenge that we face because we are relying on documents that may come in the mail. More and more, these documents come in emails, which is makes them even harder to track down for someone if you don't have the password. And you know, we have to use tax returns to find things that produce dividends or other income. I mean, Frank, that's that's one of those things you really have to get into the weeds on. Yeah, and the, and the, the case that I referenced, you know, just a minute or two ago, this guy. Um, you know, he's in need of, of, of uh, nursing home services at this point. He's probably just not really a viable candidate for home care for a variety of reasons. And he's one of these people that was never married, has, doesn't have any children of his own. So he's got this really good family friend that is his power of attorney and has been involved in his life for a very long time. But for obvious reasons, you know, the, he wasn't overly um, open about his financial picture I guess right. I put it that way but if you think about it like why would he be right like that's usually private information that's not super uncommon that just puts us in a unique situation now because now we have to try to figure out what do we know what don't we know and how do we fill in the gaps if we're thinking there's things we don't know yeah I, I would say the number one thing that I see is people don't think that it's ever going to happen to them right that they're going to just pass away in the middle of the night or you know I, I don't know what and they're, everyone thinks they're not going to be the person who ends up in a nursing home or needing home care. And I, I think we try to address this all the time is that you have to plan for the worst case scenario. Yeah. You know, in a console, we have to ask unpleasant questions. Well, what happens if your child dies? What, you know, what happens if there are no people left in your tree, uh, family tree? Now, we might not ask that if there are tons of people in the tree, but if there's one child or two children with no grandchildren, these are things we have to address because there's the possibility of assets going into a place that a person might not want. They may want it, but we need to discuss that. Um, and I wish we could just get more people to understand that they may end up in this situation. And if they don't, excellent. That's a home run. I'm very happy for you. But 75% of people need some kind of long-term care services. And then probably that number is going to go up over time because people continue to live longer. And the longer you live, the more likely you are to need these services. So having a plan and disclosing that plan to at least the people who are appointed agents in the plan is critically, critically important because someone can't act if they don't know that they need to step in for you. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, there's a recent case um, coming to mind of, you know, a woman moved um, back to this area from, I think it was Las Vegas, um, you know, Nevada. So she came here, she started living with her son, and she had done a lot of planning out at West. So she had a revocable trust. They had had everything titled to it. Her one son was her co-trustee. He just had a really, really good idea of what mom had and kind of, you know, what was around and where it was held and, and what was with what companies. And then and then her health started to fail. Um, so that's when they came to us and we updated some things. And then we were going to apply for Medicaid benefits for her. And then, unfortunately, she had some health events crap up. And right basically when we were ready to submit everything, she wound up passing away. And it turned out that she didn't need those services in hindsight. But 
that you don't know that, right? If we knew that, then the plan's really easy. We set you up to have everything go nice and easy. And the fact that she had done all the previous things that she had done 20 years earlier made it a lot easier for us to kind of alter the plan. But how many people, you know, does that not happen to where we don't have that right. relatively quick resolution? Like once there's a health event, it just doesn't typically happen that way. So, so to just kind of piggyback off what you said, Aaron, I, I certainly agree of, with the fact that while things are difficult to talk about, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be discussed or at least options considered, and then everybody can make the best decision for themselves. Yeah, well, you, you know my school. I'm a pretty direct person. I, you know, if I need to hit something on, I, you know, just kind of do it. But I know a lot of people are not like that. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean they have to be as direct as I am. But there are times where you need to raise these issues and you need to talk about them. And you need to have an idea because not having an idea is not making anything better. The um, The other thing I just wanted to quickly unpack from what Frank said is that when a Medicaid applicant holds holds property with more than one person, there is, I would say, certainly a much less commonly used exception. Agreed, Frank? Yes. Um, there's a few. You know, we talk about a lot about the residence, where the residence is exempt if it's being lived in by a spouse or a minor child or a disabled child, things like that. You know, that's much more common of what we're seeing, but the example that I was uh, outlaying in my in my kind of my opening remarks it's not that situation right there's nobody in that house now that he's not there so so yeah this is this is a much less used exception and so what happens is this is an applicant owns property with someone else and this is generally not a spouse right but they might own it with a sibling they might own it with a business partner or whoever if that person child, child not is sell the, the other common one. Correct. If that person who will not agree to selling the property, what happens, Frank? Then um, at least at least so far, the, the counties are then taking that asset and then throwing it off to the side as, as being an unavailable resource. And the good thing for Medicaid purposes there is they can only count available resources against you when you go to apply for Medicaid and when you're a given Medicaid. So if it's, if it's considered an unavailable asset, it essentially comes off the table. The other thing, though, that can complicate things, and thankfully we haven't had this situation come up, at least not recently that I'm aware of, is that if we're using this common exception, so like let's say we have a parent and a child, um, they own real property and Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Another state, so say Florida, say it's a retirement home or something like that. They, the person was living in for a long time before their health issues came up. Um, if something then happens to that child, if that child unexpectedly passes away, and now we've got the Medicaid applicant as the sole owner on that piece of property, which could certainly happen. Now, now you're kind of back in the weeds, unfortunately. That's true. I think we've seen it all happen. But 
So Frank and I are going to talk, obviously, about some common questions, some Medicaid issues. If you have a question about planning or uh, state planning, Medicaid, give us a call. It's 1-800-TALK-WGY, 1-800-825-5949. And we will be back after this break. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Welcome back to Life Happens Radio. Hopefully your life is not helter-skelter at the given time. Um, I think I said to Frank, uh, Paul McCartney is come, coming back this summer for shows, and I, I was kind of in between on whether I was going to pull the trigger. Uh, he's playing in Syracuse and then at Fenway Park, and uh, I did see him last time in, in Albany, and for a guy in his 70s, put on a heck of a show. So if you haven't seen him, I would say you may want to investigate getting tickets. But anyway, back to what we're talking about. So, Frank, we see a lot of uh, misinformation, I think, out there. We um, counsel people all the time on what the right and the wrong thing to do is. They, unfortunately, sometimes have sometimes have taken advice from their barber or their hairdresser or their butcher or you know, their neighbor, uh, their friend, that kind of thing. And 99, probably, percent of the time, that advice is incorrect. Um, although well-intentioned, because there is just so much misinformation out there. Um, and we spend a lot of time educating people in this area. We do webinars. We have our Medicaid Monday webinars coming up. The details about that are on our website at purelaw.com if you're interested. Um, where we do a Medicaid update every Monday in March. Um, but one of the most common I think misinformation topics are retirement accounts and New York has rules that really most other states do not. I believe Florida also has a similar rule, Frank, but I don't know of many other states that do. Florida is the only one that comes to mind. Again, that doesn't mean that there aren't other ones. Um, certainly the ones that are local to us, you know, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, um, they do not have the same rule when it comes to retirement accounts. I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. Um, I would venture to guess the further south you get down the East Coast, the less likely you're going to find favorable treatment as well, except for Florida. But unless, like, we've actually looked into a particular state, it's just something we'd have to, you know, look in if we were ever asked. But for obvious reasons, there's only only so many things we can do or advice we can give for states not New York since we're not license to practice in those places. Right. And, but this is a common question we get. So people leave New York, right? That's not uncommon for retirees or, um, you know, maybe they permanently leave. We've talked about before though, that a lot of times they boomerang, meaning that they leave New York from, let's say when they're 60 to 70 or 75 or 65 to 80. And then when they need services, if their family is still here, they come back here. And I, w I guess I would also say a common question we get is about residency. And there, there is no requirement that you live in a state for any period of time to be deemed a resident. Uh, there's a lot of factors that can go into it. But essentially, you have to be in the place, right? So be in the state of New York and intend to remain here for you know, the foreseeable future, not a, not a vacation, let's say. So... That's a common question. So just because you haven't lived in New York for the past five years, you can move in here and become a resident essentially in a day. If in fact, that's what you're going to do. You know, there's other indicia that we look at driver's license voting, if it's been a period of time, but generally speaking, it's easy to become a resident somewhere, but people boomerang back. But what happens is if you move to, let's say South Carolina, and you have a million dollar IRA, well, in New York, that's exempt. In South Carolina, it's not, or Delaware, it's not, or North Carolina, um, or Arizona. A lot of these places where a lot of people retire to. So that's a big change. And they're really, it's difficult to protect an IRA without, in those states, without some serious consequences, uh, tax wise and plan wise, because I think more and more people have two big assets when they come to see us and it's their house and their retirement account. Is that what you're seeing as well, Frank? 
Yes. Um, obviously dependent on the age of the people, you know, sometimes they have maybe some cash that's built up in their bank accounts just because spending typically goes down as you get a little older. And then depending on, again, where they are age-wise with the retirement accounts, they may have had to pull pretty sizable required minimum distributions out of those retirement accounts that are now sitting in a bank account or a brokerage account or, you know, something like that where it isn't exactly in a good position for Medicaid purposes any longer. But generally, yeah, the house is if, – if everybody if, – if the people come in and they have a house really of any – real significance um, at all. And I'm not, I'm not even saying monetarily, I'm just saying, you know, personally, you know, they want to protect that. And then, yeah, the usual other biggest asset is, is that IRA or 401 or, you know, whatever, whatever vehicle that those funds are being held in. Yeah, definitely. Um, so IRA planning becomes a much bigger facet or in, you know, it's a real benefit to staying in New York. I know there are a lot of people who probably don't want to hear that or, you know, I don't think it's going to make the difference of them staying in New York or not. But at least if they go to Florida, they get the same treatment. But if they go they go somewhere else, they're going to have a problem. Um, and we see a lot of bad advice with IRAs. We see um, maybe financial advisors who we don't work with on a regular basis or we don't really know advising people to pay for nursing home or home care out of their retirement account. Right, Frank? Yeah, which I always get nervous um, when that gets brought up just because sometimes, you know, for the right person, it actually does make sense to do that just because there are potential income tax offsets. If, right, you know, you're pulling out enough and the cost of your medical care is enough that, you can offset some of the income tax complications from taking retirement funds out and using them to pay for your care. But just in right. general, right, to just kind of just make this a lot more simpler for the listeners. If something's exempt, we try not usually to touch it until the very end of it <laughs> unless we have to, because why, why give up money you don't have to, right? Like sometimes it makes sense, but most of the time it, it makes more sense to use other funds first. Absolutely. And, you know, so sometimes we're in a situation, and maybe we'll talk about that more after the break because we have some limited time before the news comes on here. But there are situations where we might pull some money out of an IRA to bridge a gap, and, and we can talk about that. But generally speaking, we don't want to take a reverse mortgage on an exempt residence if we don't have to, right? Occasionally we might have to because there's just not enough income. Um, we still see that in, in cases where people, you know, their spouses died and they really just didn't plan for the, the change in income that may occur with that. Um, you know, I, I used to see a lot of widows come in and they would have 900 or $1,000 worth of income, which in today's world isn't going to cut it. But maybe when somebody retired 30 years ago, it wasn't as bad. So that's, that's something that we still see. And we may we may have to pull money from an exempt uh, asset or resource, as we call it, meaning an IRA or a reverse mortgage because of the lack of income. But if we're not facing the lack of income, we really want to make sure that we leave the pots that are exempt exempt because at the end of the day, we're doing the planning we're doing to save money and to, to get to a place where we all need to be. So that, that is critically important. Um, you know, people come to us because they worked hard for their lives. They have a nest egg and they want that to go somewhere other than for long-term care if we can do it. And that's what we do. And I would say that that is perhaps the most satisfying part of the job is making sure that people's life's work doesn't go out the window at the very end. Yeah, I, so I like agree I, more. I mean, I mean, we try to... We try to do a lot of different things with the plan, but ultimately I think people do get a really sense, a big sense of relief knowing that, you know, what mom and dad worked so hard for usually can be preserved. That doesn't mean we can save it all, but, you know, under very limited circumstances, we can usually save at least half. So that's always good. All right. So we're coming up on the news again. If you have a question about Medicaid planning or state planning, you can give us a call at one 800 Talk WGY. That's 1 800 825 5949. 
we come back, we're going to talk about some common questions. I'm going to talk about when we might have to pull a little bit from an exempt resource to, uh, to bridge the gap. But Frank and I uh, from Pierre O'Connor and Strauss will be back right after the news. Welcome back to Life Happens Radio. I'd like to think that the sun is coming after the uh, snowstorm we had. Certainly, I don't think we, I didn't get as much snow as I said during the bush, but it was still a pain, that's for certain. So I can't, certainly looking forward to spring. I don't know about you, Frank. No, I, um, I, I feel like just a few weeks ago, I was telling people I hadn't had to use my snowblower. And now I think it's so been it's your fault. Times. It's your fault. Yeah, uh, I mean, you're you're going to say stuff is my fault anyway. So you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's added to the list. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But no, I, I we got. I I was saying to you before we got on air that I think we got between eight and nine inches up here in Saratoga. So you know, I would say it was fun to deal with, but it was cold. It was not raining on top of it. It was manageable. So and and yeah, I take it over. There are the there's any you know, any day. Yeah, there's there's blue sky outside. There's there's some blacktop appearing on my driveway now, so it, I think we'll be all right. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about just briefly where we might access an exempt resource as a bridge. And really what I was talking about is a home care situation, because if someone's nursing home eligible, you get them placed. They may not be receiving Medicaid right away, but Medicaid always goes back to the date that they were eligible to repay the nursing home. So. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Placement in a nursing home from that like income perspective and paying for things is less tricky. Agree with that, Frank? I do. The only caveat that comes with that, and thankfully we haven't really had this come up because we try to be very clear with clients about this, um, but sometimes when people start work either with the nursing home or even another attorney's office, this has come up. So if you have someone that's placed, let's say they got placed you know, earlier this month, and we want to go back to January 1st just to, to pick up some Medicaid time for the nursing home. If they haven't been approved for Medicaid, but we're anticipating that they're going to be, when that approval comes, the nursing home is entitled to January income, right? So if you spent it between now or of what, you know, between January and when we get approved, they're still going to want that money. They're not going to care about right. the house or the kids or Christmas or whatever happens. So if you're going back to cover nursing home time, that doesn't mean that the nursing home doesn't get the money ultimately for the back month. That's all. That is, that is exactly correct. And we see people get tripped up on that. That's called NAMI, uh, net available monthly income. Um, and if you go to a nursing home, they get your income other than $50. It's been the same since 1965. So if you own a house, and it's somehow exempt, and you go to a nursing home, that income does not get to support the house. It, it doesn't matter, essentially. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, they get your income. If 
you know, if you have a spouse and, you, and your spouse doesn't make enough money to meet the minimum monthly needs allowance, then we have a different story. But keep it simple. If you're a single person, you own a house, you have income, the house is exempt, and you go to a nursing home, you don't get to use your income to support the house. So that's one that people have trouble understanding. And I think I say all the time that these rules aren't necessarily logical, but these are the ones we have. So these are the ones we play by. Where we might no, use and, income. And, 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 I was going to say, they, they do, if you're in the nursing home, they do not care about your house, unless your spouse is in it or a disabled child's in it. Or, you know, but if you're not and no one else is, they do not care about your house anymore. Exactly. So a uh, common situation, though, where we might use, let's say, an IRA to bridge a gap would be a home care scenario. Because if you're home care eligible, meaning that you have less than $16,800 in resources, that aren't exempt, and we apply, there's going to be a fairly lengthy period of time before services. I would say 90 to 120 days. I mean, I think we've had longer than that, Frank, right? Um, but typically, I, I think that's at least a good ballpark estimate. Yeah, I, without getting into the weeds on that issue, there's a lot of reasons why something can, can get delayed. And a lot of it, unfortunately, isn't um, with even the county office any longer or with, with our office. Um, because, because once you're financially approved from the county, then you have to start getting assessments done. We may be waiting for something to be done for the, by the Department of Health to get you eligible to use a pooled trust, which we talk about constantly when we're on the show talking about these types of things. So there are other players besides just the law office and the, the local county Department of Social Services that have to get involved to fully put the plan together. And when you're getting four to five different entities working on one particular thing, mm -hmm. even though one, one, or two piece, one or two pieces may go pretty quickly, that doesn't mean that the other ones, unfortunately, are going to go the same way. So yeah, I think 90 to you know, 120, maybe even 150 days is usually all around in that ballpark of when most cases are gonna get decided and fully done, unless we're using something like immediate needs or something like that. Right. So we'll come back to this in a second, but we do have a caller, Gary. Morning, Gary. Good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for the program, as always. I try hard to hear it every week. I miss some of it this week, and I have a question for you. It's a little bit off topic. I hope you won't mind that. I, um, I, have, been in the, in the, I have been in the office before with um, Lou and Frank because friends of mine uh, did have an uncle we had Medicaid situation with, and uh, we end up employing the firm and they were very very happy with the results that frank gave them so thank you for that absolutely thank and, you um, thank you my question is this um just had my dad and stepmom a while ago pass away and their estate trust came to me and my siblings and what i need to know is what are the new york state and federal tax consequences on inheritance from a family member. Okay, great. I can, we can handle that. The good news is that in New York State, there is no estate tax, essentially, unless you are over $6 million, okay? Uh, and mm -hmm. in federally, it's $11 million. So unless the estate was well, over one of those Well, that sounds pretty good. Numbers, it didn't quite do us that much good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never like to assume, so, but, you know, most people are under that amount. And so... There really is no tax consequences to any of you. Uh, the only way there could be any tax would be if income has been earned since date of death, and, and that's really it. So. Okay. Well, I thank you guys so much, and I'll keep listening to the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So great, great question. We get that a lot. Um, so I just wanted to button up the topic we were talking about was bridging the gap. Um, so this is a home care scenario. We might not have a lot of money available to pay for AIDS once we apply. So if someone just has a bank account and, and an IRA, Frank, we might have to take some money out of the IRA. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in that scenario, um, there's really no other funds that can be used. So if it's either use those funds or that person can't remain in their residence and that's where everyone wants them to be and we can make sure that they're safe 
you know, then we kind of don't really have much choice other than to do what we can and kind of just throw that into the, the plan as well. Um, we kind of the same thing with like a reverse mortgage, essentially, you know, I don't know if you were going to head that way shortly, but it's the same idea, right? If we don't have any other choice, that's one of the planning techniques that we can use for residency and, and equity that isn't liquid. Yeah. And so when we don't have a choice, we have to get into that exempt bucket. We really try not to, but you know, ultimately it's the person's money who we're assisting, right? It's the person who needs the services. And if that's how they are going to stay at home, then that's how we're going to do it. So uh, we get other common questions about IRAs. Okay. We get, unfortunately, oh, we have, I'm sorry. We have another caller. We, good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, great show, guys. Appreciate everything you're talking about. Um, my question um, goes to a defined benefit pension plan. Um, and I'm just curious uh, how that's treated for Medicare planning, uh, Medicaid planning, New York State, um, and um, if there is a spousal option, um, uh, you know, spousal, spousal benefit on that. I, I'm interested in hearing about it both as a single life and as a, as a joint life um, uh, issue, if you could comment on that. Sure. So uh, defined pension benefit is going to be treated as income, um, generally speaking. So some people get a lump sum retirement. Th that is going to be treated as 100% available unless it's uh, tax deferred. And then it will be treated like an IRA once it's put in payment status. If it's just generally a monthly pension, it's going to be treated as income. If the person receiving that pension goes into a nursing home and their spouse is under the minimum monthly needs allowance, which is approximately $3,300. I know it just went up a little bit, Frank. What's, what's the number? Uh, 3435. There we go. So if, if you, you know, just for this example, if you went to nursing home and your wife or spouse didn't have that much income, your income would get shifted to her to get her to that amount. Um, if, when you pass away and she gets you know, whatever portion of your pension, again, it's just treated as income. So it comes to a nursing home event, then they're going to get that income. If, again, both of these are home care scenarios, then there really is no effect on your income. We're going to use a pool trust and save 100% of it. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. You got it. Great call. Good. Uh, questions today so yeah thanks thanks very much for everyone who's who's listening it's nice to know people listen when we talk that's all <laughs> it, is, it is it is kind of a strange thing to uh speak into the air and hope that people are listening but obviously uh we picked a radio station that's been doing this for a very long time and has pretty strong listenership so um kudos to wgy for that frank anything you want to add to that uh pension income scenario? No, I, I think you, I think you covered it really well. I, the, the comment is unfortunately we're just seeing less and less people that have pension benefits, unfortunately, you know, more often than not, it's the income calculation is, is comprised of social security and then the required minimum distribution from that retirement account. Um, you know, that IRA 401, 403, 457, whatever it is that we, to, I've already talked quite a bit about during the show, um, but obviously if you do have a pension, um, you know, that is part of your income. If you're one person at home, you get to keep $954 of it, and then anything above that goes into the pool trust, which we may talk about, we might not. depends what Aaron wants to talk about. <laughs> well, I, you know, this is something I have said in the past is that that world is changing. Obviously, we still see uh, state retirees, federal retirees, uh, teachers, uh, you know, other government retirees, uh, maybe a little bit like somebody from Albany Med, they still have a pension program for some people. But the risk of your income, who, the, the entity that bears that risk has been shifted, right? So it used to be if you retired from the power company or the phone company or 
whatever company, they would give you a pension for the rest of your life. So they were bearing the risk on how long you were going to live and maintaining those funds. Now that the world has shifted, especially in private industry, to retirement accounts, the individual is the one bearing that risk. So they have to make sure that they save and and have enough. I, we hear people say, I want to make sure I spend every dollar of this. And I, I don't know that I've ever see, seen that happen. Maybe it's happened. Um, and I always say the problem with that is no one knows how long they're going to live. And if you think you're going to live to 85 and you're going to spend your money at that rate, and then you suddenly live to 93, you got a problem. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of thought process, while I certainly understand it, I, I don't think in uh, practice and in logic it works. So, yeah, and, and, and just, to, just to kind of go back for just a second, um, I'll make it quick because I think we're coming up on the next break here soon. But, Aaron, you mentioned the misinformation and the things that we hear and things. I mean, we met with a woman um, Thursday. I was going to say yesterday, but it was Thursday at this point because of the snowstorm. And she was given a lot of misinformation from her family's attorney, right, who does some of what we do. I don't think they do a lot of Medicaid planning um, by the sounds of it. Um, but, you know, it, it just it comes very crucial to make sure that you're getting that, that good information and, and all those things. And then you're taking into account all of these different things that we've talked about as we've gone through the show so far. Absolutely. So Frank is right about that. And he's also right that we need to take our last break. So again, we ha we'll have about 10 minutes left when we come back. If you have a question, give us a call at 1-800-TALK-WGY. That's 1-800-825-5949. And we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, everyone. Life Happens Radio, Aaron Connor, joined by Frank Hemming of Pierre O'Connor and Strauss. We're talking Medicaid misconceptions, common questions. Um, and we see a lot of bad advice about retirement accounts. Um, occasionally, and thankfully we don't see this too much anymore because we try to get out and educate, but I've, we have see people deplete their IRA before other things, right, um, because they might get a tax write-off for their nursing home care on this, uh, on their taxes. So it might wash the tax effects of it. You've seen that, Frank, right? Seen that advice um, be given? Yeah, of course. I mean, sometimes I, I think most honestly, the, the time when I've seen it probably the most would be in, in the situation where the Medicaid person, or at least the Medicaid applicant, has significant assets and where essentially we're going to private pay for five years to get them through the period, um, you know, which is not a common planning scenario, to be clear. Most people cannot, cannot do that. Um, but if, if there is an opportunity to, to kind of private pay and save the remainder once the five-year look back is over, I have used IRA. I have seen IRA funds used in that instance because we got to find the dollars anyway. And if you're paying that much, and you have accounts of that size, it just seems to make sense or to at least consider doing that um, from a tax perspective as well as a Medicaid perspective. Right. But 99% of the time, we don't want people taking money from their IRA. Usually, this is like uh, advice given by, I would say, probably an inexperienced financial advisor where they're only considering one portion of the plan. And when we do this, we try to do it holistically. Um, meaning that we look at everything that's available and we're taking money from non-exempt buckets. And, you know, to, to some extent, income tax factors into that, but most people we see don't, aren't going to have a huge income flex from what we're doing. And, you know, if you make $100,000 a year in retirement and you're as a single person, um, you know, you're going to get some benefit from a Medicaid plan if in a nursing home, but the higher and higher your income goes, the less likely that is. So, but for more typical people, we don't want to touch your IRA. We want to leave the exempt buckets alone. We want to use savings. We might be an investment account that is not exempt that we might 
you know, take things out of. Um, it really just all depends on the scenario. But we we want to do it tax efficiently, certainly, and there are factors that need to be considered for that. But we don't we don't want to take leave exempt things available and use non you know leave. Excuse me, I said that wrong. We don't want to make exempt assets available while leaving available assets, you know, there. Because what you're doing is you're essentially making the time that before you can access Medicaid longer because you have more assets than you really do from an exempt sense. I don't know, Frank, maybe you can clean that up a little bit. It's a little complicated. No, I, I, I'm certainly following what you're saying. Um, I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, when we're when we're looking at whether someone's eligible versus not eligible, the, typically the only reasons you're not eligible are because either you're medically not qualified for it, and you know, generally, if if we're talking about doing a Medicaid plan now and doing an application now, usually the medical part isn't really, you know, in question. How much is right? You need that that you know that that's a that's much more of a fluid situation, if you will. But usually, that's the medical piece isn't the main focus. So if right. Well, this focus, is what I have to say to my daughter when she says, this is what I have to say to my daughter when she says she wants to put me in a nursing home and I'm sorry, I'm not there yet. Right. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not anytime soon. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But continue. Sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. So, so if, if, if it's really the finances that we're looking at, then the only reason you're not eligible for Medicaid from a financial perspective is, you have more than 16,800 of assets or you've made gifts or other transfers within the look back period where you appear eligible, but once they do the audit, they're going to find out that you are, you know, cause I don't know if this is misinformation, if you will, but a lot of people, when they come in and talk with us, they say, well, what happens if we don't get approved? And my typical answer is, well, paying us and retaining us to get approved, right? That's why we're doing this. But there are usually only very limited circumstances why you wouldn't get an approval. And if for whatever reason, we're not going to get one, then we work on it and we fix it. it will, exactly. I mean, look, if people, we have to sometimes encourage people to do this, but if you're honest with us, right, you tell us what your assets are, because some people think that if they don't tell us, they the asset won't be discovered. Well, that's, you know, come on. You're not the first person to try that. There's, and even if that snuck by in the application process, you've then committed a fraud, which is a crime. So, you know, it's not it's not a time to be uh, cute or whatever you want to say about that kind of thing. But if you don't tell us about an asset, then that could possibly um, knock you off if we don't discover it. But generally speaking, we're going to discover it in the process of going through bank records. I think what people miss sometimes, Frank, is how, I mean, everything has really gone through very carefully, like each, you know, deposit and uh, withdrawal and, and, you know, where, where did this come from? Where did that come from? I, I think sometimes the average person just doesn't, doesn't understand what the process of that is really like. So if we prepare it, we've gone through all of the things that the county's gone through we may not necessarily agree on a treatment right away of this withdrawal or that deposit or whatever, but we know what they're going to raise. And I think you can speak to that better than I can. Yeah. I mean, the, it's an interesting dynamic we play, right? Because we, we have a duty of, of service and, you know, all of our ethical considerations to, to do the best possible job we can for our clients, right? They're, they're our number one, our number one priority. On the other hand, when we're doing Medicaid work, we have to work hand in hand with the local county Department of Social Services because once we have everything collected and we ship it off to them, you know, they're going to be in contact with us about what they're seeing, what they're finding, you know, their interpretations of things. So then if there's something that they have questions about, they're going to ask them. If they think something was one way and we think, something, you know, it's not that way, we're going to have a conversation with them occasionally, not often, thankfully, it may even require either an agency conference or even a fair hearing to discuss the issues and figure out who's who's correct. But, you know, it's not overly adversarial, especially not at the start, because we don't want it to be that way, right? We have to have a relationship right. with the people working on this stuff once it gets to them. Right. And we are advocates. So 
I mean, we're going to take the position most favorable to you that we can win on, right? If I advocate for something that I have no chance of winning on, I'm not doing you a service, right? So part of what we do is a hard conversation of, well, this gift is going to be treated as a gift or this, you know, withdrawal is going to be treated as a gift because we can't substantiate anything else related to it. In other cases, we may have a pretty good idea of, you know, why this is not. And when we do take a position that a withdrawal or usually a withdrawal is not a gift or is X for Y, if we are in a scenario where that makes a person eligible or ineligible, it's a big roll of the dice because I, d yeah, I just don't if, think, if, if Frank, we're going to be able to get if, there. Yeah, if 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 we're if we're taking a guess, we're not going to make a guess about basically being eligible or not. If it's going to have substantial consequences to somebody, right? I understand we have a caller on hold, but we only have about two minutes left. So I would just ask if that person has a question that we could answer, that they email us at info.prolaw.com or give us a call at the office at four five nine twenty one hundred. I just uh, I don't want to get uh, in a situation where we can't answer your question. I do appreciate the call. Um, but at the end of the day, people employing us, Frank, are looking for Medicaid approval, right? So that's I what we're so. going to deliver on. <laughs> and of course, um, you know, in some scenarios, it might be more pleasant than other scenarios. It's just that's just kind of the way it is. You know, and and sometimes we can find creative solutions to things. Um, I, I like to think that there's less and less things that we haven't seen, but but, the, you know, I, I can't think of how many times a client has come in and said, well, I'm not going to be able to get Medicaid. And at the end of the day, they were able to get Medicaid. Now, that doesn't mean that we could save literally every dollar they had. But usually there's a plan. It's just a matter of what we have to do to get you there. And the only way that we can do that is to be open, honest, know what you're doing, know what you've done, and then work with us. That's our job. Yeah, I mean, people have to understand that if they have to tell us something that maybe is embarrassing or even potentially illegal that was done in the past, we have a duty not to disclose that. There is an attorney-client privilege between us and the client. So I, I do think that that often gets forgotten, and we need to know everything because we can't make a plan without that. So great calls this week. Um, appreciate the calls. I appreciate the listening. I actually will be back next week with Teresa. Again, if we didn't get to your call, you can give us a call at the office at 518-459-2100, or you can email us at PRLaw, info at PRLaw.com. Medicaid Monday is also on the website if you're interested in that. Thank you, everybody, and have a great weekend. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.